there was a great danger among the church that this book was written to that they would fall away from their once professed faith. And so for those who are beginning to grow lethargic and sleepy, they needed their attention to be arrested. They needed a warning. They needed a shout, as it were, of truth to wake them up from this dangerous state of soul. There's other examples of this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, just to cite one or two of these. Listen, therefore, verse 1, chapter 2, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, then here's the pivot in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed, distributed according to His will. So we have all the more reason and even less excuse to leave the ground of our faith than those of the Old Covenant had. We see this again in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, when the emphasis of the greater Moses who has arrived is in the forefront. We see this in chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, where again the author calls our attention to what has gone before, so that we might take seriously our responsibility and our accountability now that Christ has come. In this case, in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And notice the pivot in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? It is serious, you see. These examples join others like chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, chapter 8, verse 6, 9, 14, 12, 9. These are in your notes. If you have a copy, you can look at them later. All this to show that the author employs this literary device broadly and specifically to show us the weight of New Covenant revelation. In this way, the book of Hebrews addresses, repudiates, it refutes directly a rampant heresy of our day. There is a direct application in Hebrews for us these days in kind of greater Christian America, Christian culture that we live in, quote-unquote Christian. In our day and age, it's, oftenly, it's often explicitly and even more frequently implicitly held by people. They, we, we tend to presume, that is, that the Christian faith is much more easygoing and much more laid back these days than religion, quote-unquote, once was in the Old Testament. We, generally speaking, as the church in the developed West, in these prosperous societies, take our Christianity far less seriously than, obviously, the Old Testament says the terms and conditions were. Are we fearful to approach Mount Sinai lest we be killed? Do we realize that apart from the atoning work of Christ, there's a line of untouchable perfection? And if we are to reach out, as it were, and to touch the Ark of the Covenant, 
whatever that symbolized of old in our day, that we would be killed in a moment, incinerated justly, sent to hell if the atoning blood of Christ wasn't covering us. It is so easy to forget the significant, weighty, stark, serious conditions of the faith and therefore how precious and how indispensable and how valuable the blood of Jesus is. And what a grace, what a gift, what a glory, what a a privilege to be able to celebrate in the body of Christ and to partake of things that He has given us to remind and to emphasize to our souls the reality of salvation, like the meal we have before us today, the communion elements. I am afraid, brothers and sisters, that we are guilty often in our culture of an easygoing, laid-back version of the Christian religion. And to this, the author of Hebrews shouts, false! It is false to think that Christianity is more laid-back or easygoing, that New Testament faith is something that is a lighter version of the heavy, old version. It is not. These days, we need a corrective. We need the book of Hebrews. To this notion, the author of Hebrews provides an exhortation and a call for repentance. And his point in our text today comes by way of three contextually meaningful references from the Old Testament. The intensity of these references is surpassed only in the New Covenant, only by New Covenant implications. In other words, again, he's making the point, if it was serious then, it's serious now and even more so. If the people were accountable then, how much more you who have greater light and knowledge? If the terms and conditions were precise and must be followed, how much more perfectly are they executed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the great high priest? Let's consider these three references this morning in their context under this heading. Three perspective-shaping Old Testament references in context. The first one I've identified by this phrase, if they did not escape. And you can keep your thumb in Numbers 16 and Hebrews 12 for this. Notice again in our text today, therefore, since we... Excuse me, that's the beginning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So you see the reference and then the pivot. If it was serious when God warned the voice that was speaking on earth, called the attention to people, to the people to take seriously the weight of the truth that was revealed to them, how much more he who speaks from heaven. That's the basic construction. Well, let us ask the question first, who is speaking? They did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. How much less will we escape him who warns from heaven? See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who is speaking? We'll back up just one more verse, two perhaps. We have come, it says, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, verse 23, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And verse 24 specifically identifies the speaker, if you will, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And even more precisely, we find the voice being the blood of Christ himself, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. So who is speaking? Jesus Christ is speaking from heaven, as it were. And even more precisely, what aspect of the person and work of Jesus Christ is bearing this message? It is his blood. That which the blood of Jesus Christ represents and proclaims is a message that shouts forth from heaven with greater seriousness, greater weight, and greater accountability than the earth-shattering experience of Sinai, where the thunder rolled, the lightning flashed, the doom and cloud and tempest encircled the mountain, and those who dared to touch it, aside from two mediators, as it were, Moses and Aaron, would immediately die. These references of Christ remind us that as His blood speaks to us even at the communion table today, it is a witness and a message echoing forth through history with no loss of fidelity from the moment the very first drop of His atoning blood was spilled on the way to Calvary. This testimony, this proclamation, infallibly infallibly proclaimed in His work and on the cross and in Holy Scripture, that without the cleansing blood, there is no remission of sins, and in His blood alone do we find salvation. This is the voice that we need to listen to. Attention! Listen to the blood of Jesus. Pay attention to the message, to the witness of the blood of Christ. Now, as we consider who's speaking... The message of Hebrews comes full circle and brings us right back to the beginning of the book. Turn with me back to Hebrews 1. And here again we see this emphasis of the way things were spoken of old and the way things now are spoken with more clarity and power in the new covenant. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in chapter 12 that's sort of like the speaking from the earth as it were. There was the former voice that came in many ways by the fathers and the prophets. Then the pivot in verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now when Moses spoke, when he was given the words of God to declare to the people, the people had better listen. We will learn in a few moments The repercussions, if they did not, they must take the words of Moses seriously so long as they were the words of God. However, Moses, when he was speaking, he could not boast the pedigree of Christ. Moses didn't create the world. Moses was a sinner like you and me, neither Aaron. Aaron, though high priest, his office must be respected, but Aaron had his his issues as well. However, these days, these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, the perfect, sinless, high priest, prophet, king, representative. How much more should the voice of Christ be compelling to us than the voices of old? After all, verse 3 declares, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels 
as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So if they did not escape in the olden days, under the old covenant, when the voice of the Lord spoke through prophets and in the and fathers in various ways, how serious is it? How serious is our accountability to the voice of Christ, all men in fact now that Christ has come? To help us gain perspective, let's go back to the reference that our author has in mind. Turn with me, if you would, to Numbers 16. Now, most directly, the voice, of course, was that which was featured on Sinai. In Hebrews chapter 18, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest, the sound of the trumpet and the voice, whose word made the hearers beg. All of those phrases, those seven qualifiers, refer to the mountain experience of Sinai, where God spoke to Moses and to Aaron, and when he delivered the Ten Commandments to the people. So that was the voice from the earth, as it were, that the author refers to at the end of chapter 12. But we also have this phrase in our text today, if they did not escape when they refused him. So there were those who refused the voice of God, and they certainly did not escape. And number 16 records one of these moments. Let's listen to the repercussions, this perspective-shaping event in the Old Covenant, touching upon some of these events. Now Korah, verse 1, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. Verse 2, they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and who will bring him near to him, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them, put the incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation and to minister to them? He has brought you near him and all your brothers and the sons of Levi with you, and would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered. What is Aaron that you grumble against him so? In opposing Aaron and in opposing Moses, the people were opposing the Lord. That's what Moses tells them. Did they escape this rebellion? Nothing could be farther from the truth. Moses said to Korah, verse 16, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord tomorrow. So each of these chiefs, the 250, they took their censers, and they took them as something like, a represent, <clears throat> like representing their people to bring their grievance before the Lord. 
And they stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Verse 19, then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance. We've got a big showdown going down. We have two factions. Those that stand with Moses and Aaron and those that stand against the Lord's appointing the agency of Moses and Aaron to lead them and therefore opposing the Lord. So here they are assembled. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation and the Lord gave Moses instructions. Verse 20 says, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. So Moses did this. He ran to Dathem and Biram, the elders of Israel. They followed them. Verse 25, he spoke to the congregation, depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away. They got away from the dwelling of Korah, Datham, Abiram. And Datham and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. In other words, if the Lord lets them continue to live, they die a natural death, then maybe they have a point. On the other hand, verse 30, but if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belong to them and they go down alive to Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Verse 31, as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they, all, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And here's... A detail I had forgotten, verse 35, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. So you had this whole camp of Korah, earthquake happens, a chasm opens in the crust of the earth that swallows up this whole cadre, their families, everything they own. But over here, the 250 representative chiefs, not to be excluded from this judgment, the fire of the Lord comes up from the earth and melts them, incinerates all of these men. And then what happens is their censers, their instruments of incense and worship are pulled out of the fire. They're hammered into plate, plates as a covering for the altar in verse 38. They offer them before the Lord and they become this sign before the people. What kind of sign was it? Well, every time the people who are still alive looked upon the altar, they could see right there proof positive evidence that no one denies the word of the Lord or his appointed one and escapes. But the ground itself will swallow them up straight to Sheol before God will suffer long with those who mock and rebel against him. This is how serious the word of the Lord was. It was even more serious. On the next day, this is the dumbest thing I can possibly imagine. Now, if this happened, what would you do? You're still alive. You happen to be one of the ones who had the good sense to run away from Korah. What would you do the next day? 
well, I think you ought to be shaking in your boots and quaking at the knees and begging God for forgiveness for even letting, letting the thought pass through your mind that would question the word and authority of the Lord vested in His servants. No, in verse 41, these people, it says the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. The Lord spoke to Moses, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And here is the gospel, verse 46. Listen, saints, this is the gospel prefigured in the Old Covenant. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, put fire on it from the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. 250 rebels tried to intercede on the grievances of their people to oppose the Lord. They were destroyed by fire that melted down their censers, and the rest of the congregation that followed them was swallowed alive. They couldn't change the Lord's mind, even with the majority, even with 250 influential individuals. Meanwhile, on the other side of the coin, one man, God's appointed priest mediator, intercedes, stands between the people and certain death and prays that God would save them. And God does. Not before 14,700 had died by plague, but those that yet remained, who hadn't been killed by plague, who hadn't been burned by fire or swallowed in the earth, they saw a picture that day of atonement. One man intercedes for the people. This is the way God spoke of old. He spoke in this way through the prophets, through these forefathers in the faith. And it was representative, symbolic, and shadow, and type, and so on. But it was serious. And we read of its seriousness. And the message of Hebrews is, remember moments like that. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If they refused Moses and Aaron who were speaking of old, and if they did not escape the judgment that we just read of when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. If we reject the message of the blood of Jesus Christ. If we reject the authority, the intercession, the mediating role of Jesus Christ, our high priest, whose office is so beautifully in detail laid out in the book of Hebrews. This is the message. It's a perspective-shaping reference from the Old Testament. Consider who is speaking. Consider how serious these terms are. And finally, consider that atonement is necessary. Why? Because we are all sinners. At one point, we have all grumbled against the Lord. There is none holy, not even one. We are all together in the same camp of rebels, just like in the Old Testament where we just read the poison of asps under our tongue, born in sin, wicked to the core, and we grumbled against the truths of the Lord and railed against His authority in our sin. Yet one man interceded for us. Look to that one. Do not refuse Him who is speaking. If we look to Christ as our intercessor, the one who is the great high priest who could truly <coughs> fill <coughs> the shoes of Aaron, 
<clears throat> we have salvation. But without him, we share the fate of Korah, his followers, and the chieftains, and the 14,700 who died in a moment by plague. This is the message. See to it that we pay close attention. Do you see how I said before how the author of Hebrews refutes the heresy of our day that Christianity is more laid back and easygoing and self-centered and a more palatable religion than the religion of old? That is not a biblical thought. In fact, the opposite is true. We need to consider the seriousness of old lest we forget the even more serious conditions in the new. Second major point, another perspective-shaping reference to which our author refers, denoted by this phrase, yet once more I will shake. What does this refer to? You can turn to Haggai chapter 2 for this. In our main text, however, at that time his voice shook the earth. Our author records, he says, But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So what is the perspective here that he begs his readers to heed? Well, if we go back to Haggai, the citation we just read appears in chapter 2, uh, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. It continues, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Further on in this chapter, the word of the Lord comes a second time to Haggai in verse, chapter, or verse 20. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What was going on at this time? Well, first of all, the prophet is speaking out against self-centered priorities. The church in that the, received the letter of the Hebrews was also in danger of placing things of the self above and priority over the things of the Lord. Instead of building his kingdom, they were paneling their houses, as it were. Um, so thus, the principles of Haggai applied to them, and hence the reference. Notice in Haggai 1.3, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, quote, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves 
but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land. And the hills, on the grain, new wine, oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast, and on all their labors. So you see the context? The people were investing their time, their effort, their energies, their affections, their money, their, their uh, craftsmanship into shakable things. Things that were going to rot and be reduced to rubble in the future. They were paneling their houses and rejecting the priority of the things that last for eternity. They were not looking to the unshakable kingdom, yet once more indicates the removal, that, the removal of things that are shaken in Hebrews 12, that it is things that have been made like paneled houses, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There is coming a time, the prophet declares, when in one fell swoop, I will come in with my judgments. When those times come, the coming of the Lord, where will your investments pay off? Where will your investments be proven to be uh, placed? Will it be in the things that will be destroyed on the final day? Or will you have stored up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not come in and steal? Haggai chapter 1 encourages the people to repent of self-centered priorities. Priority 1, you go back. You can build your house, yes, but make the house of the Lord central. The God's dwelling among you, the terms and conditions of His favor, His presence entertained among His people, the means of grace availed among the people of God is priority one, build the temple first. For 16 years, so I'm told, they had languished in this task and they had built their houses instead and the Lord did not bless their efforts. But it was a call to repentance. Move away, reject uh, these self-centered priorities. You are negligent in temple construction. Your motivations have been co-opted by your own pursuits and priorities. And notice how the author in this principle begs, or the, uh, the prophet begs the people to tie their present resolve to future glories. Tie your present resolve to future glories. There was a cost and significance analysis that no doubt the people, cost and risk analysis the people were running. They didn't think it was really worth it to be working on the temple. It agitated their enemies for one, and they could keep a lower profile working on their homes. No doubt they felt that the project, the building of the temple, was not significant enough to justify its cost. We see this in the text. The people were sad that the temple did not retain the glory that it once had, and they were discouraged. But it wasn't the physical building that was the issue. It's what it represented that was priority. And the people should have, instead of been uh, discouraged, they should have put themselves to the task of following God 
in faith, even though it looked like it wasn't really worth it. And so this is the message of Haggai. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Chapter 2, verse 3. How do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And then our quote, our citation, once more, a little while, will shake heaven and earth, sea and dry land, will shake the nations so that the treasures of the nations come in and so forth. So here is the message. It applied to the hearers of of the book of Hebrews even as it applies to us today. Setting aside your personal and self-centered priorities in order to invest in the kingdom of God is always a worthwhile endeavor. Perhaps you find yourself pulling away from the assembly of the beloved. Perhaps you find less desire to invest and to participate in God's plan through the gathering of His people, through the worshiping together, and through the duties and the responsibilities that He calls us to as a people. Perhaps we just don't think that energy is worth the cost. The church in that the author of Hebrews writes to, needed to realize that it was. Perhaps they had grown weary under persecution. After all, in chapter 10, we hear something of their plight. The author in verse 32 says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith if he shrinks back. My soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So you see, even in the context of the book of Hebrews, the people were likely growing weary of the persecution that was the cost of their fellowshipping together and supporting one another even when they were imprisoned. Instead of forsaking the assembly of themselves together, as the book says, the call was to invest in the unshakable kingdom. When you gather as a church, it may be in a humble place. It may not bear the glory of Solomon's once great temple, at least as far as the building is concerned. You may be marginalized in the culture you are in, mocked by those, <coughs> by those who surround you. <coughs> it may seem like you have very scant resources to work with, and that even making yourself vulnerable to relationships in the community of God comes at a risk. The message of Hebrews, the message of Haggai is build, invest in the unshakable kingdom. Do not let these factors discourage you because there's coming a day when yet once more I will shake, the Lord says, heaven and earth. And in that day, the only thing that will stand is that which is built on the unshakable foundation of the kingdom of God. 
of the things of the Lord, of that which he died to purchase, souls, a church, assembly of the beloved, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, in this context, let us offer to the Lord acceptable worship. Final point this morning, perspective-shaping reference. Our text today says in verse 29, For our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. Turn to Deuteronomy 4. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 9, there are three, it's a threefold admonition that Moses gives the people because he senses that they are likely to drift into apostasy just as the author of Hebrews does. He says, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen unless you depart from your heart all the day or from your heart all the days and they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Now in the context here, there are ways that Moses exhorts the people to take care, to keep their soul diligently, and to not forget. He commands them to remember. He says, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor in verse 3. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal. So he's pointing to one of those Korah swallowing moments and another judgment that the Lord brought on them for idol worship. And he's saying, Take care. Remember the consequences of drifting from the truth of the only way of salvation. He's also saying to them that they will uh, keep them, he says, of the commandments of the Lord in verse 6, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people. In other words, how do you take care? You pay close attention to the statutes of the Lord. And as you do so, it'll be a testimony to others, nations around you will marvel at the wisdom and understanding of this people. What great nation, will they say, is there that God is so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon them? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous all this day that I set before you today? So take care, avoid idolatry, and saturate yourself in the Word of God. Secondly, keep your soul diligently. There's instructions to do this as well as the text continues. You can read some of these at your own time, but they include instructing the children, making known those ways of the Lord to your children and your children's children, for instance, in verse 10. And then the third admonition, lest you forget. Verse 15, <clears throat> Moses says, Therefore watch yourselves, be very careful, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image and he goes on to recall their, to their attention that event at sinai verse 23 take care lest you forget the covenant of the lord your god which he made with you and make a carved image the form of anything that the lord your god has forbidden you and here's our citation verse 24 for the lord your god is a consuming fire a jealous god Moses goes on, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness. If you break this covenant, may heaven and earth stand up to witness against your idolatry. He goes on to say many things that call people's attention to the seriousness of the relationship 
that they have with the Lord. He says, for instance, in verse 32, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. What's he referring to? The testimony of Mount Sinai. Did people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, war, mighty hand, outstretched arm, great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words, out of the midst of the fire. So again, this is the event, these are the words, this is the context to which the author of Hebrews refers when he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Meaning our God is a jealous God. Take seriously his word. Pay close attention. Take care. Keep your soul diligently. Do not forget. Moses asked the question. He says almost rhetorically, Ask now the days that are past before you since the day that the Lord God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or has ever heard of. What is this great thing to which Moses refers? Have a people ever heard the voice of God speaking out of the midst of fire as you have heard and still live? Has something like this ever happened before in history? If the answer is no, and at this time the answer is no, then pay close attention. Be diligent to keep your soul. Do not forget the significance. Now the crazy thing is, as we get back to Hebrews, is that the answer to that question in the coming of Christ is actually yes. Is there ever a moment in history where something greater has happened than the Lord speaking out of this firestorm on Sinai, delivering His law to the people? And the answer is yes. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things. And again in our text today, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Christ has come. The stakes are higher. The accountability is more, uh, even, even more intense, if you will. And we have infinitely less excuses. Therefore, in light of the fact that God is a consuming fire, let us take care, keep our souls, and not forget. How should we take this message? Our text answers that question as well. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. What does acceptable worship look like in light of this wide lens of Scripture? Remember the aim of this message? To illustrate how this wide lens of Scripture, we've covered a lot of territory, how that wide lens of Scripture ought to focus our worship. 
ought to focus the application, our obedience, ought to focus our actions. Well, our text tells us that acceptable worship is that worship which is grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Says later, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Gratefulness, reverence, and awe. This is what this wide lens of Scripture ought to work in our heart, to focus our worship so that we are more grateful, realizing what we are saved from, that we have more reverence, that we consider holy and seriously the Word of God, this time together, worshiping Him, praising Him, living in light of these truths, and that we do so with awe, not blind to the majesty of His glory revealed in His acts in history, your own salvation, and what this table represents. One way Jesus' blood speaks to us today is in these communion elements. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, by His sprinkled blood atones for sins, and that blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Consider our message today. That is the message that these elements proclaim to you. That as you approach the table, as a believer this day, you approach a representation of the broken body of Jesus and His shed blood. Blood that shouts, justified. Abel's blood cried out for judgment. Jesus' blood says, the judgment for your sin is satisfied in my body, in my torn flesh. This is the message. Do not refuse Him who speaks from heaven. Listen to the testimony even at the Lord's table today. Heed the warnings. And also, as we take in all of these truths, these perspectives from greater Scripture, may we participate and fellowship and partake of the Lord's table today with gratefulness, with reverence, and with awe. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that your Spirit's use of the Scriptures has offered us to realize, perhaps to greater degree, the significance of these moments we share together and this meal before us today. I pray that we would remember the power, the cleansing power of your blood as we partake at in communion. That we would remember that justice is served upon your broken body, Jesus, as we worship you this day. Move our hearts to pay attention, to treat with reverence and fear, your glorious revelation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.